This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, giving you the opportunity to get involved and make your community a better place for seniors. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. One of Canada's foremost warriors against misinformation gets the Order of Canada. I'll talk to Tim Caulfield. And move over dry January and veganuary. Some say this is the month to become a reducitarian. We'll explain. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Canada is not the only country with a shortage of family doctors. People in Britain are resorting to do-it-yourself medicine because they're unable to see a GP. In fact, a new study finds that more than a quarter of Britain's adults have tried getting an in-person consultation with a GP in their local area but were unable to do so this past year. While some delayed seeing a doctor or gave up altogether, about 16% either administered treatment themselves or asked somebody who was not medically qualified to do so. The findings have been described as a national scandal by the Liberal Democrats who commissioned the survey. While Toronto is on track to see one of its lowest totals for pedestrian fatalities in more than a decade, with 22 pedestrian deaths in 2022, Jersey City across the river from New York City got to zero traffic deaths, recording its safest year on record. How did they do it? After surveys, audits, and interventions like speed humps and crosswalks, city planners tried something else. They installed mini roundabouts using whatever materials the city had handy. Traffic cones, planters, barrels, plastic delineators, paint. They were only temporary, but speeds came down about 10%, and three-quarters of the residents support making the circles permanent. Other DIY fixes include pop-up pedestrian plazas, two-way bike lanes, and vehicle-restricted slow streets. Canadian-born older adults are more likely to successfully age than immigrants, according to a new study that finds more health interventions are needed to improve their experience. Researchers examined four areas, physical, psychological, and emotional wellness, social wellness, and self-rated wellness. Seven in ten non-immigrant participants were successful agers, while just over six in ten immigrant participants were the same. According to some studies, recent immigrants may experience psychological distress as they adjust and potentially face economic hardships, lack of social support, and ethnic discrimination. Immigrants make up 22% of the Canadian population. 
weed is coming to U.S. gas stations. One of the largest U.S. cannabis producers signed a deal with convenience store chain Circle K to sell licensed marijuana at its Florida gasoline retailers. The partnership will begin next year with 10 of the company's 600 locations in the state. The deal is rare given that legal marijuana has so far been sold only in standalone dispensaries in the U.S. By selling marijuana, which is still illegal at the federal level, at gas stations where consumers buy staples like snacks and cigarettes, the partnership may help push the drug further into the mainstream. Shares in Green Thumb, the cannabis producer, were up by over 10% this week. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. He's been on the front lines of fighting misinformation for years, from debunking wacky wellness trends to countering anti-vax conspiracy theories. Edmonton professor and author Timothy Caulfield, whose Cheating Death series was featured on our sister station Vision TV, is a newly minted member of the Order of Canada. I reached him in Edmonton. Congratulations. Well-deserved. You are a warrior against misinformation. We've talked about that many times. Yeah, and, and I think one of the really nice things about, about the award and the recognition, it's, it's not just about uh, misinformation, but I think that that was a big, a big part of it. And, you know, I, I, I think it's, you know, beyond my work, uh, it's, it's nice that, that that topic, right, is getting attention is, and is increasingly being recognized as, as an issue that we need to tackle at the highest level. Um, look, it, you know, we've talked about this before, right? You know, misinformation is killing people. It's, it's one of the, the defining challenges of our time. So, yeah, very honored that, um, that, that, that this re- award reflects that. The times that we live in, uh, some people call it the post-truth age. Is it? I think it kind of is. And, and, and one of the great challenges is so many of, of our, our structures, our frameworks, our, our, our incentives are designed to promote untruth, right? To promote uh, hyperbole, to promote misinformation. And by that, I mean, you know, the algorithms that drive the social media pro- platforms, the algorithms that drive our, our search engines, uh, the market forces that reward people for, you know, selling unproven therapies. And so, uh, you know, we have to actively push back against those forces. And, and I'm, all, you know, I always try to be a positive person. <laughs> you know, the good news is I think more and people, more and more people are doing that. So you're starting to see all these fantastic, creative, young, diverse voices that are, are stepping into the ring to push back against the noise. But in addition to that, we're starting to get more and more research about what really works to fight misinformation and to correct the record. You know, debunking, pre-bunking, teaching critical thinking skills, yes, using some regulatory tools, all of those things are necessary. We've got to come at it from every direction. Is there a profile of the kind of person that would be prone or susceptible to misinformation? Yes, there is. There is a a little bit of a a demographic emerging, our our profile emerging. And uh, yes, education matters. Critical thinking skills matter. Um, 
right now, ideology matters very, very much, and increasingly so. Um, it's so misinformation is becoming intertwined with ideology, unfortunately, and so that's creating these echo chambers. That matters. That matters too. Um, and so we've got to recognize all those predispositions when we're we're thinking about ways uh, to fight misinformation. Ideology. So it is more likely on the right. So you know, again, I want to be really careful. You know, vibrant democracies you know, flourish when we have a, a variety of voices across the, that ideological spectrum, uh, and, and misinformation resides across that, that continuum also. But yes, right now in this current cultural moment, you see my <laughs> being really careful here, Libby, uh, it definitely is more so on the right. And, and I'm not just saying that, you know, glibly we have a lot of research that suggests that, right? At the extremes, both on the right and the left, on the extremes, you see more misinformation, you see more the more spreading of misinformation. Where did this, I don't know, trend start? With social media really has transformed the spreading of misinformation. So many other cultural forces are relevant. The rise of, you know, uh, celebrity influencers and, and wellness brands in the health space, all those things are very relevant. But, you know, I, social media really has changed the game. Social media, no question, it's, it's the means. But I was thinking that the first time I really noticed this kind of phenomenon taking hold was uh, with Jenny McCarthy and the whole autism is caused by vaccination thing and so many people believing that. Yeah, it's funny you should say that. That was in the back of my mind when I said celebrity influencers. I mean, it's a very good example, I think, of how both the role of celebrities, right, but but also how a lie um, can, you know, get have a life of its own and it can be very difficult to counter. Of course, there's the famous goop Gwyneth Paltrow and and her remedies. What role does that part of the cultural moment have? Um, yeah, I, I think that, that that's definitely part part of the equation. And, and you saw you saw this sort of take you know take off. Right, you think about sort of the wellness trends that we've had. Um, you know, in the '60s, it was very much you know sort of a, uh, a new agey kind of almost counterculture phenomenon that really wasn't corporate in nature. Then in the '80s, you have like Jane Fonda, and it's this fitness movement, and you start to see it becoming an industry. And then uh, in the '90s and, and the early aughts, it really takes off as a massive industry that has been largely driven by celebrity brands, right? You know, Goop being just one of them. Um, and you're seeing, you know. People like Tom Brady and other voices, you know, the tech bros, as, is, uh, as they're often been called, come into the game, too. It, you know, it's been said it's a, a multi-trillion dollar industry, right? And uh, that industry is largely built on misinformation and science-free approaches to health, which is, you know, really unfortunate. Where are we right now? I do think more and more people are recognizing the problem. We're seeing more formal responses to it. We're seeing more research come out on how we can fight misinformation. All of those things, I think, are are, are really good. The bad news is, uh, yeah, there's just so much of it out there, uh, and it's become more ideological. It's become more about personal identity, and, that, and that's going to make it more difficult to fight it, right? Because you get these echo chambers. It becomes an incredibly polarized discourse. It becomes arguments about what is misinformation. But we can't give up, Libby. You know, I, I, I'm optimistic that we can move forward in a, uh, in a very positive manner. It's a fascinating topic, and uh, your insights are very valuable. So thank you, and again, congratulations. 
Thanks very much. That was Tim Caulfield, who was recently awarded the Order of Canada. He is the Canada Research Chair in Health Law and Policy, a professor in the Faculty of Law and the School of Public Health, and Research Director of the Health Law Institute at the University of Alberta. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review coming up. If you're looking to eat a more plant-based diet, but going vegetarian or vegan is too extreme, try becoming a reducitarian. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, offering members-only discounts that can save you thousands of dollars a year. Find out more at carp.ca. It's the latest take on eating healthier in January, the reducitarian diet. No one will win a marketing award for that name, but it offers guidance on reducing the amount of animal products we consume without eliminating them altogether. I reached founder Brian Cateman in New Jersey. A reducitarian is anyone who has decided to cut back on the amount of animal products that they consume. That's meat eggs, and dairy. And really the reason for the reducitarian concept is that, look, we eat way too many animal products. The average person simply does not eat enough fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and legumes like beans. But of course, most people don't want to completely give up animal products, and there's lots of reasons for that. And so what we're about at the Reducitarian Foundation and part of this movement is really encouraging people to simply cut back, make some small changes to their diet, cut out some of those animal products and incorporate more plant-based foods. That's going to be good for the planet, it's going to be good for animals, and it's going to be good for people in terms of their health. And how did you come up with the name? Truthfully, my friend and I were just talking about how there really wasn't a label to describe what we eat. People would ask me, what do you eat, Brian? And I'd say, I'm vegetarian. And then on Thanksgiving, when I pop a small piece of turkey in my mouth, you know, my sister, my family, they kind of poke fun at me. I was getting flack from vegans for not trying hard enough and getting flack from omnivores for pretending like I was trying more than I actually was. We needed a word that described our intention, which was to do our best every day to cut back on the amount of animal products that we consume. And so we just were kind of playing around with different words, and we came up with the word reducitarian, uh, and that word has really stuck ever since. You've called reducitarianism a movement. So how long has it been around and uh, how many followers do you have? Yeah. So in, you know, in, in something like 2014, my friend and I came up with this concept, reducitarian, and the idea was to inspire people to sort of let go of this all or nothing framing of our relationship to meat and cut back on the amount of animal products that we consume. We created a nonprofit organization called Reducitarian Foundation, and we have a number of different programs that are centered around education. How are you funded? But fund- I do want to be clear. How are we funded? Yeah. Oh, we have we, we, primarily from donations, philanthropists who care about this, who care about you know issues related to climate change or animal abuse or human health. We have some sponsorships from food companies related to our Reducitarian Summit. Um, but this is a huge problem, right? There's many, many more people who are eating way too many animal products versus people who are making these changes. How is that different from being a so-called flexitarian, somebody who is vegetarian sometimes and sometimes not? 
you know, a flexitarian is really someone who primarily eats plant-based foods with the occasional inclusion of animal products. And that's a really wonderful thing to do. And that certainly puts someone in the vegetarian category. But the thing is, most people don't want to be flexitarians. Most people want to have a lot of animal products and they want to have a small amount of plant-based foods. And what we're trying to argue is that if someone can, let's say they're eating 200 pounds of meat a year, oh, if wow. they can cut back 10% or 20%, that would make a huge difference. Huge difference. That person's a wonderful reducitarian. Is what you're advocating, it sounds to me very similar to the Mediterranean diet we've been hearing about for years. You know, that's the thing, right? This is a common sense approach to eating. Everyone knows that eating more whole foods, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes is a sensible thing to do. So I'm certainly not claiming that this is a revolutionary idea, but it is revolutionary in the sense that the vast majority of people are not eating enough fruits, vegetables, whole grains. And part of the problem is that there's too much meat at the center of their plate. You know, I live in the United States as a very meat and potatoes kind of place. In many parts of the world, that's the case, too. And so we need people to move a little bit of that meat to the side and incorporate more of those plant-based foods. And if someone wants to call that embracing a Mediterranean diet, all the more power to them. What about food waste? Food waste is a big problem. Something like 50% of all food that is created is wasted. But here's the, the more subtle point. More food is actually wasted before it gets to your plate. In order to raise those animals for food, we have to feed those animals, right? And so rather than feeding those animals and seeing all of that food be used up by those animals before people eat the animals, it's much better if that food, that plant-based food, goes directly to people. You still have to feed the animals even if you don't end up eating them, right? You have to feed the animals if there's, if there's a market for them. But if, if we could move away from raising 80 billion land animals a year globally, if you and I, let's say, help cut back on that, let's say we, get, we all contribute, we get it down to 75 billion, that's going to reduce the number of animals that are raised for food. That's going to reduce the amount of plant-based food that's going to, that's going to animals instead of people. In other words, if you really care about food waste, of course, eat whatever food is on your plate. But it's really hard to compete with the basic premise here, which is that a lot of plant-based food, it goes to animals that is then going to people. And that is not an efficient way of, of feeding a growing population. If you're really concerned about food waste, you got to eat lower on the, the food chain, as they say, eat more plant-based foods. Brian Cateman, thanks so much. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. That was Brian Cateman, founder of Reducitarianism. That brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.